0: Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post. And this is The Daily 202 for Monday, January 4th. In today's news, the US death toll from COVID surpasses 350,000 as the vaccine rollout stumbles. President Trump's deregulatory push has made the pandemic worse. And Iran begins enriching uranium to 20% in new violation of the nuclear deal. But first, the big idea. President Trump urged fellow Republican Brad Raffensperger, the Georgia Secretary of State, to find enough votes to overturn his defeat in an extraordinary one-hour phone call on Saturday that legal scholars describe as a flagrant abuse of power and a potential criminal act. Trump did most of the talking. He was angry and impatient, calling Raffensperger a child, He said law enforcement officials are either dishonest or incompetent for not finding widespread ballot fraud in Atlanta. My colleague Amy Gardner obtained a full recording of the conversation in which Trump berated Raffensperger, then tried to flatter him, then begged him to act, and then threatened him with vague criminal consequences if he refuses to pursue the false claims. Trump warned at one point that Raffensperger is taking a big risk. Throughout the call, Raffensperger and his office's general counsel reject Trump's assertions, explaining in detail that the president is relying on debunked conspiracy theories. They explain that president-elect Joe Biden's 11,779-vote victory in Georgia was fair and accurate. Let's take a listen to a clip of the president and the secretary.
1: The people of Georgia are angry. The people of the country are angry. And there's nothing wrong with saying that, you know, uh, that you've recalculated.
0: Well, Mr. President, the challenge that you have is the data you have is wrong. Trump elaborated on this a few minutes later.
1: I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more that we have, because we won the state.
0: The rambling and, at times, incoherent conversation. And you can listen to the full hour-long tape on our website. Offers a remarkable glimpse of just how consumed and desperate this president remains about his loss, unwilling and unable to let the matter go and still asserting that he can reverse the results in enough battleground states to remain in office. Now, the details of the call drew demands from Democrats for criminal investigations. Campaigning last night in Savannah, Georgia, Vice President elect Kamala Harris called Trump's conversation a, quote, bald faced, bold abuse of power by the president. Trump's pressure campaign on Raffensburger is the latest example of his attempt to subvert the outcome of the November election through personal outreach to Republican officials. He previously invited Michigan Republican state leaders to the White House, he pressured Georgia Governor Brian Kemp in a call to try to replace the state's electors, and he asked the speaker of the Pennsylvania State House to help reverse his loss in that state. Trump's call to Raffensburger came as scores of Republicans have pledged to challenge the Electoral College's vote for Biden when Congress convenes for a joint pro forma session on Wednesday. Trump also told Raffensperger during their Saturday conversation that a failure to act by Tuesday will jeopardize the political fortunes of Senators David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler, Georgia's two Republicans, whose fate in that day's runoff elections will determine which party controls the U.S. Senate. Trump said he plans to focus on the alleged fraud tonight during his rally in Dalton, Georgia. Here's the president warning Raffensperger on the call that not declaring him the winner could cost their party control of the Senate.
1: You know, the people of, of uh, Georgia know that this was a scam. And because of what you've done to the president, a lot of people aren't going out to vote. And a lot of Republicans are going to vote negative because they hate what you did to the president. OK, they hate it. And they're going to vote. And if you would be respected, if really respected, if this thing could be straightened out Before the election, you have a big election coming up on Tuesday.
0: Now, a growing chorus of prominent establishment Republicans are speaking out about the president's autocratic conduct. In a remarkable op-ed for our newspaper today, all 10 living former defense secretaries say the time to question the election results has passed. And they warn that there is no role for the military in changing the outcome of the election. The authors include Trump's two former defense secretaries, Jim Mattis and Mark Esper, as well as each surviving Senate-confirmed Pentagon chief dating back to Don Rumsfeld in the 1970s. The article brings together a group of Republicans and Democrats who don't agree on very much. Its genesis was a conversation between Eric Edelman, a former U.S. ambassador and defense official, and former Vice President and Defense Secretary Dick Cheney about how the military might be used by Trump in the coming days. Our Pentagon correspondent, Dan Lamothe, reports that after Cheney expressed interest in co-authoring an op-ed, Edelman solicited participation from all the other former defense secretaries and then wrote a draft along with Elliot Cohen, another former Republican national security official who's now the dean of the Johns Hopkins School for Advanced International Studies. Some of the defense secretaries requested modest revisions, but nothing significant to the message. William Cohen, a former Republican senator from Maine who served as Bill Clinton's defense secretary, said in an interview last night that the discussion of martial law has deeply alarmed him, especially after Trump's use of the military and other federal forces to remove protesters outside the White House in June. Cohen also cited the use of federal law enforcement personnel to remove protesters in Portland, Oregon, in unmarked vehicles over the summer as another abuse of power. While he said he has no doubts about the willingness of General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, to follow the law, he says he's concerned that violence started by Trump supporters, such as the Proud Boys, could be used as a pretext by the president to deploy troops against civilians. The other former defense secretaries who signed on to this op-ed are Ash Carter, Bob Gates, Chuck Hagel, Leon Panetta, and Bill Perry. While Trump has called reports that he discussed the possibility of invoking martial law to overturn the result of the election, fake news, he recently invited Michael Flynn over to the White House shortly after he pardoned him, for a talk. The retired Army general and his first national security advisor had suggested on television that Trump could declare martial law and use troops to force new national elections. Trump was intrigued. Protests are expected in Washington on Trump's behalf on Wednesday, and the president has been encouraging his supporters on social media to show up. He tweeted, quote, "'Be there. It will be wild.'" Federal and local officials here are preparing for street violence in the Capitol. D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser, a Democrat, is asking all residents of the city not to come downtown on Tuesday or Wednesday to avoid confrontations with the demonstrators. Bowser has also asked people not to counter-protest in order to minimize potential conflict with groups on the right. Bowser is activating an emergency operations center beginning today to improve interagency cooperation. In November and December, pro-Trump protesters, including the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and other far-right groups, amassed in the district to protest the election results on two other occasions. Both days ended in significant violence. Experts who monitor far-right groups are warning that Wednesday's event could be more dangerous because apparently members of these groups have been discussing ways to sneak caches of guns into the district. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we start the week. Number one, the coronavirus didn't take a Christmas vacation. More than 350,000 of our fellow Americans are confirmed dead from COVID. We're continuing to average between 2,000 to 3,000 deaths per day. The nation topped or neared 200,000 new cases for the sixth straight day on Sunday. More than 125,000 people are battling COVID in hospitals across America this morning, One hospital in San Jose is battling an outbreak that has infected at least 44 people who work in the emergency department, including at least one person who's now died. The outbreak may be due, in part, to an inflatable Christmas tree costume that an employee wore to work on December 25th. The employee was unknowingly infected with the virus, and the costume was powered by a fan that may have spread droplets of the virus all around the ER. More than 30 countries now have reported cases of the highly transmissible UK variant of the virus. Vietnam yesterday became the latest nation to report a case. Turkey on Friday reported its first 15 cases of the UK variant, and at least three US states have identified cases as well. Meanwhile, other developed countries continue to run laps around America on vaccine distribution. About 4.2 million people here have received the first dose of the vaccines being distributed so far to mainly healthcare workers and the elderly, a figure that falls far short of the 20 million people who Trump repeatedly promised would be vaccinated by the end of the year. More than 13 million doses have been distributed, according to the CDC, but local health departments and state officials complain that a lack of communication and resources from the federal government has hampered their ability to get shots into arms. Frustrated Americans are struggling to sign up. Americans trying to access shots are encountering systems that vary widely, not just state to state, but county to county, And in many places, these counties are overwhelmed. Some counties and hospital systems launched reservation websites only for them to quickly become fully booked or crash. Others announced appointments only through Facebook, with slots filling up before some residents even knew to look. Many have not revealed how the vaccine will be made available to anyone beyond healthcare workers or long-term care residents and employees. In one striking image, Florida Health Department officials offered doses on a first-come, first-served basis, they saw scores of seniors bringing lawn chairs and blankets and camping out overnight so that they could get the vaccine. Mansef Slui, the chief advisor for Operation Warp Speed, announced yesterday that some Americans may start receiving only half the recommended dose of the Moderna vaccine in order to speed up the beleaguered rollout. The vaccine is delivered in two doses, and under this modified regimen, recipients will still receive two separate shots, but each dose would be cut in half. Slewy said that clinical trials showed an identical immune response when participants between the ages of 18 and 55 were given 50 microgram doses rather than the standard of 100 micrograms. Number two, the Trump administration allowed 15 poultry plants to increase the speeds of their slaughter lines during the pandemic, an action that has boosted production and made it more difficult for workers to maintain space between one another a growing body of evidence shows that this move by the administration has significantly hastened and accelerated the spread of the coronavirus. And now the outgoing administration is rushing to finalize a rule that would make these faster line speeds permanent and expand them to dozens of other poultry plants, a move at odds with views held by Joe Biden. Since 2018, the Trump administration has issued temporary waivers that grant permission to 54 poultry plants to increase their line speeds. These plants are allowed to speed up their lines from 140 to 175 birds per minute, a 25% increase. They are 10 times as likely to have coronavirus cases than poultry plants without the line speed waivers, according to a really fascinating data analysis conducted by our Kimberly Kindy, Ted Melnick, and Arellis Hernandez. The Post's findings mirror academic research that shows more coronavirus cases in counties with plants that have waivers to raise their line speeds. Workers tell my colleagues that the fast line speeds make it sometimes impossible for them to socially distance during their eight-hour shifts as they struggle to work faster. Most of these plants are large, employing thousands of workers who work in tight quarters, creating conditions that fuel the spread of the contagion. Meat plants, of course, have been among the most virulent hotspots this year, or I guess I should say over the last year. More than 51,000 workers in beef, hog, and poultry plants have become ill from the virus, with at least 347 dying after becoming infected. Number three. The Iranian government announced today in Tehran that it has restarted the process of enriching uranium at a purity level of 20% at its underground facility in Fordow. Iran's state news agency says scientists began the enrichment process Monday afternoon after notifying the International Atomic Energy Agency. Iran began ramping up its nuclear activities after Trump withdrew from the 2015 agreement that curbed their nuclear ambitions in exchange for sanctions relief. Meanwhile, in London this morning, a British judge denied the U.S. extradition request for WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. Assange stands accused of violating the Espionage Act for publishing classified military documents related to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. His lawyers argue that the extradition request is politically motivated and say he's suffering from a range of mental health issues that could be exacerbated in the U.S. prison system. An appeal is expected. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, January 4th. Thank you for listening. I'm James Homan. I'll talk to you tomorrow.